Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Jimmy Sony is a speaker, speechwriter, and author of the books The Founders, The Story of the PayPal and Entrepreneurs Who Shaped Silicon Valley, Rome's Last Citizen, The Life and Legacy of Coteau, A Mind at Play, Mortal Enemy of Caesar, and Jane's Carousel. The story of one woman's remarkable 25-year odyssey to restore the beloved carousel of the Brooklyn Bridge Park. He's also the creative director of Clout Public Affairs and has previously worked for the New York Observer, Washington Examiner, and the Huffington Post. At their core, Jimmy's books are passion projects. Jimmy Jimmy chooses topics because he wants to read about them but can't find a book to buy on the subject. He is inspired by his literary heroes, including Robert Carreau, Laura Hillenbrand, Candace Millard, Daniel James Brown, and Barbara Tushman. Like the acclaimed authors, Jimmy combines rigorous research with readability. He doesn't want his books to feel like doing homework. He enjoys obsessing over a subject for years and aims to find as much information as possible and then make the material readable for the general audience. Jimmy, welcome to the One Away Show. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me. So, so good to have you uh, with all of our conversations the last couple of years around a uh, big release coming up for you. I was going to say, this, this has been an episode long in the making, my friend. Long, long in the making. <laughs> you've, been, you've been alongside me for this insane journey. I know. I remember you calling me four or three years ago after right. happened, you're like, who's this guy? And I was like, great. You're writing this crazy book. So um, I was in my dad's driveway. I'll never forget. I just, That's hilarious. And I was just listening to you talk and I was like, this guy's great. Anyways. So, <laughs> well, the feeling is mutual. Oh, great. I'd um, love to know that. Um, let's dive in, uh, Jimmy, you know, what is the one away moment that you want to share with us today? Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. So I, I spent like a decent chunk of my, like the last four or five years working on this, this project. And there's probably things that you might expect were like the one away moment. Like, you know, you'd, you'd sort of expect that it was meeting one of the higher profile people or some random, you know, some random encounter with one of them. But I, I actually have a different memory of it, of the one away moment. And that is, when I, one of the things that happened during the course of doing this book, which was this early history of PayPal, is that someone had kindly shared like a bunch of random emails that they had kept um, over the years. And we're talking 20 years has passed, right? And I didn't really know what I would get from those necessarily, but I remember coming across the weekly company newsletter that was an internal newsletter. And it was called the Weekly Expert because Elon's part of the company was called X.com. And then later it was renamed the Weekly Pal because obviously PayPal. And it was just the internal company newsletter. And I remember seeing that and seeing what it had within it. And what it had within it was like random updates about the company, birthdays. They had a weekly puzzle. They had like random, like kind of shout outs. If someone had a, had a kid or if someone got married, like ephemera, that sort of stuff. 
but I had this every week for five years or four, sorry, for three and a half, four years of the company's history. And it was pay dirt from my perspective. Like it gave me everything. It told me the, about the time that they celebrated Elon's birthday, right. At Fannie and Alexander's. And it told me about the moments right after September 11th, when all these employees are reflecting on what nine 11 means and how scared they are and what uh, the uncertainty around it all. It, it gave me, you know, a window into what the Halloween party was like and who dressed up as who, right. So there's memories you can get from interviewing people, but those memories, especially 20 years later, like they're all hazy. They're, they're kind of, you remember bright moments and they're not, you know, you might not get everything right, but you cannot argue with a weekly company newsletter and you can't actually recreate a lot of it. So I'll give you an example. There's this moment in the weekly newsletter where the company outfoxes Steve Jobs and the way they outfox him is Steve Jobs or who, I mean, whoever at Apple, well, I think it was Steve Jobs. It actually says Steve Jobs in the email really wanted to rent out this theater, like in, in some theater near their offices for a screening. And the company wanted to rent out the same theater for the screening of the X-Men movie. Cause it's X.com. So they're like, let's do a screening, a group screening for the X-Men movie. And this woman, Tamika Carr manages to like get there first get the theater signed on the dotted line, organize the screening. And apparently like there was this battle, like Steve Jobs really wanted this theater. And Steve Jobs is someone who has a history of getting what he really, really wants. But the theater was like, no, I'm sorry. They beat X.com beat you to the punch and you're not going to get this theater. And it's this amazing moment that's only captured in the weekly company newsletter, you know, and like any attempt, like it wasn't a, it was a sort of inconsequential story that no one given the context would have necessarily remembered, but I was able to track it down. And it was thing after thing like that. And I can tell you that it was like, for me, one of the most meaningful parts of the whole process, because while it was, you know, whatever, it was, it was really engaging to, to meet with some of the people in the story and I certainly like, I value those conversations. I learned a lot from them. Um, part of doing history is actually appreciating like, these are things that like, you need to, you, you can see it come to life when it's a weekly company newsletter. And when you can see that it's about birthdays and celebrations and a whole life is lived within these companies. For me, that was epic. It also gave value to like everything I had put into it because it was, I was already knee deep in the project when I found that. And so it was like, just, it was, it was epic in every way. Cause I could finally be like, wow, there is something here. This company was special and this newsletter can give me a real insight into it. And that's, that was probably the one, certainly it was, it was a one, it was one of many one away moments, but it was one of them. Well, super profound Uh, as a historian that you are, I'm sure digging that up was like finding you know, the famous treasure and in Indiana Jones, uh, you know, I'm not getting super descriptive. I'm, I can't even remember, but it's just like getting that type of uh, artifact, right? Artifact to help tell a story of lived experience must have been amazing for you. And I want to I want to come back to this artifact for sure. But I want to ask you, though, is Jimmy, you, you took a very, in my opinion, bold and audacious risk in a great way to write about some of the most successful, revered, uh, irreverent men and women 
in Silicon Valley, uh, sharing the story of PayPal. What I'm curious is why. Like why, why out of all the things that you could write about, you picked this group at this time period to unveil the truth of what it was like building this company? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm sort of sort of laughing at the question in some ways because the, the, my answer is going to be not profound and probably somewhat disappointing. Um, but I will just tell the, the truth of it. So I had written a proposal to do a book. So I'd written this book about Claude Shannon, who's the founder of information theory. And it was called a mind at play. And it was a fun book to do. And I sort of like, saw like, I was like, all right, what's my next biography going to be? So I wrote this epic proposal for this biography of Bruce Lee. And I was like all about it. I was like, I want to do Bruce Lee. I think he's an amazing figure. I think he was a trailblazer. He's like the patron saints of self-improvement. He was Jackie Robinson for Asian Americans in film. Like he's just this epic, epic person. Died really young, really tragically, like a lot of mystery around, you know, it had everything. It had all the goods. And I went to Simon & Schuster and they said, they sort of gave it like a tentative yes. But in the course of like that tentative yes, it was, we also discovered that this author, Matthew Polly, had been working on a Bruce Lee biography for a number of years. And he was everything I was not. <laughs> you know, he was a martial artist. He spoke Mandarin. And he had basically finished the book. And Simon & Schuster, I guess he had had some issues with his pu original publisher. Simon & Schuster was thinking about buying it. And so they sort of came to me and said, hey, listen, like, we know you want to do Bruce Lee, but there's this guy, Matthew Polly. It seems like he's got the goods, like he's done a lot of work and he gets this space really rigorously. And I, I remember like I was a little heartbroken because I wanted to spend a few years doing it. But I also remember thinking like, no, this book's going to be great because he actually has the knowledge to do it. And I'm not a martial arts person. And like, you know, so I, I remember that was actually the project I was supposed to do. I was not supposed to write some like history of, of a Silicon Valley company, but I just started thinking about clusters of talent. And I, it was in the course of doing Claude Shannon. I, I studied and visited Bell Labs and kind of like really immersed myself in Bell Labs history. And so then I just like started thinking like, what are other clusters? PayPal is one of the ones that naturally pops up because of everything that these people have gone on to do. And I just went on Amazon and I really couldn't find, again, this is like actually a very mundane story in some ways. I couldn't find like a, a rigorous, really, really like extensive soup to nuts history of the company, like the sorts that have been written about other companies. And so I was like, all right, let's, let's like see how far I can push the rock, like push the ball until someone says no. Mm. And the, you know, so, so like, I just started reaching, <laughs> it's like, I just started reaching out to like the people who are at the heart of the story through networks and contacts and friends and little like cold emails and stuff. And basically nobody said no. Like it was one of those, where I was really waiting for somebody to like shut the door in my face, but nobody did. Sometimes it took a little bit of persistence. Like it took, certainly there were, there were a couple of people I wanted to talk to where it took about two to three years of trying before I was able to get them to talk to me. Mm -hmm. um, I had to jump through a lot of like people, people were really skeptical. They said, you know, we don't want you to do this. If or, or they would say like, what's your angle? Like, can you answer these questions for me? That sort of stuff. But I think it was, it was really an exercise of just going and seeing that there wasn't a book deciding that I wanted to do it. And then having a, a take on it that was about what does it mean to tell the, the biography of a company? Like you mm -hmm. could tell biographies of individuals, but it's uh -huh. actually kind of interesting to do a biography of a company because it's not one person. There's not right. one hero, right? It's like, 
hundreds of people. And so I had this thought, I had this thought in my head, literally, Brian, it was like, just keep going until someone says no. It was like, just like, keep going. And somebody, eventually someone's going to be like, wait, 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 you're not, you're an imposter. You're not Walter Isaacson. I'm sorry. You're in the wrong room. Like get out, you know? And so I had this, this, like, it was, it was like a soundtrack. It was like, oh, I'll just keep going until someone says no. And then I'll find another project. No one said no. And five years later, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to take away from the work I did, but I am saying that it was not a, so there was no grand plan. It was, I wanted to understand. I wanted to understand what it was like to build this company in the late 1990s. And I figured that just because the people were famous didn't mean they didn't have stories to tell. And I assumed that there were a ton of people that had never actually been asked about their experience in this company before. And I figured that was going to be pretty, pretty rich material as well. Yeah, totally. Uh, so what I'm thinking away is it took Bruce Lee, you said you could write another biography of a person. Yeah. Got like a semi okay, but you know, maybe more interesting. Let's write a biography about a company. Well, you you just yeah. Said, you didn't just pick any company. I mean, you, you picked uh, a behemoth, behemoth at the top of the mountain type of company with some some major players. And also like took a very circuitous roundabout to getting everyone you know, together to, to interview and put, put a lot of the pieces together. Yeah. Um, so you said, let me go do this. I mean, were you certain though that all these people were going to give you their time energy? I mean, because... It, if you didn't get those people's thoughts and, and perspectives into the book, uh, it probably wouldn't be, you know, as authentic as it could. So was there any fear around that? Oh God, it was endless fear, man. I mean, and you and I have talked about this in different ways, but it was basically like a daily dose of fear for five years. Um, I, I cannot tell you how many times I revised notes to people and like, it, it, it took a lot to even send certain emails to people to like make the ask, right. To like do cold emails or cold outreach or even like lukewarm outreach. Right. It was a lot of fear because these are, they're formidable people. Um, both the famous names and the, the, the folks that are, that are more like behind the scenes, like these are formidable people who run technology in Silicon Valley today. I, I suppose I, I did a couple things in order to deal with the fear. Cause I think fear can be adaptive, right? Yeah. Like fear, fear can actually be a very, very power. Fear can be very powerful fuel. There's this great line that Jimmy Iovine has in the defiant ones, which is like one of my favorite documentary series. And he said, uh, he learned, I guess it was in the course of working with John Lennon that he turned fear, fear from a headwind to a tailwind. And I would think about that a lot when I was like doing this and I was like, well, how am I going to turn like the fact that I'm terrified into something that's actually productive? I did that through insane research. And what I mean by that is basically I would just, uh, there's this, um, there's this great like Muhammad Ali quote where he talks about like how he, if he became a garbage man, he would just be the best garbage man ever. If he became a journalist, he would like read everything about somebody that he was going to interview before he went in to interview them. It's a pretty epic Ali quote, one of many. I, what I would do is like, if I had an interview with somebody like David Sachs, who is formidable, very, very smart, very active vocal on Twitter, I would go back and I would like watch hours and hours and hours and hours of footage and read everything that he had said about PayPal before I ever set foot in the door. Wow. And so what I became was like, like I, I kind of knew pieces of the story well enough and close to the action enough. Meaning like I was listening and watching interviews from like 2002 and 2003, four five that I never went in blind. Like mm-hmm. I would, I would, 
any person I would go and see on like a site, like listen notes or C-SPAN or YouTube or Vimeo, like what else have they said? Where else have they said it? What's been written? And I would read and I would reread and I would reread and I would reread until it got to the point where like, I knew I'd be comfortable in an interview setting, not sounding like a total idiot. Because the truth is like a lot of this, uh, these people have no time, right? They, they have no reason to talk to me, right? I have no platform. But what I came in with was like, actually at that point, a pretty decent understanding of the dimensions of the story, what else had been written about it. And some of the places where I felt like, okay, you got to give me more here or more here. I, I think that also made for engaging conversations because we weren't starting at, mm. at ground zero. Right? right. So I would say I was terrified. Mm. Fear pushed me to be probably, I would say actually better prepared than I even needed to be. And, and it was just purely out of a, like a, a sense of self-preservation. Like I have to be able to hang. Like I got, look, you got to be in a room with Peter Thiel, you know, this like grandmaster chess player and not have him think of you as a total idiot and an Aravist, you know, like you, you have to actually be able to perform and, and ask him questions that are going to be engaging and thoughtful. And the way to do that is to review every other question he's ever asked about PayPal and then work backwards and say, like, what hasn't he been asked? Like, where right. are the places where I feel like we're a little undercooked? Huh. So it sounds like it took an incredible amount of front end research before you even touched on their door or knocked on their door because you had to, to catch their attention. You had to really thread something in a way that wasn't vanilla, wasn't generic and something that had never been been done before. So the level of resources and materials though is fascinating. You didn't just go look at one YouTube interview or one you know post on Twitter. You looked at the full body of work around a very particular time period and then yeah. kind of found found the opening maybe to to catch their attention. So well go ahead. Oh no I mean I think but I think it was I'll offer two two observations on so your description of it is hundred percent right. Um it was probably overkill. Like it turns out they're, they're super, they were friendly. They were nice. They weren't like out to like tear my head off or anything. Right. Like I actually went in probably like way over prepared in some ways. I, I maybe should have like lightened up a bit, but, but I would offer two, two things on it. The first is that the, you can learn a lot without, you can study an individual and learn a lot without ever actually engaging with the individual. So if you think about part of what I was able to do is like watching like hours and hours and hours of, of footage and material. I learned a lot in that process, meaning a lot of the quotes that are in the book are not from interviews I did, but from interviews that were like lost to the sands of time, wow. right? There's this interview that Elon did on Chinese TV. And on Chinese television, he is asked about what a company is. Like, what does it mean to build a company? And he, and he describes it as this process of like, well, you start out and you're mostly wrong. And you work backwards and you sort of figure out what is right. And it was a really, it's a the quote is in the book. It's a really evocative quote. I promise you most people have not seen that video because it is at minute like 32 of this video where he's being interviewed on Chinese TV. But I would just watch and listen and read everything. And it gave me the ability to find little gems that were tucked in other places that maybe hadn't been lifted out. And, and then also to go in and not ask him that question. Meaning when I'm with him, he's already answered it in one place. And he's pretty consistent in how he gives answers. I'm not going to ask him that. I've got other things I can ask him. The, the other part of it is, you know, it gave me a sense of confidence. Like I would, I went into those conversations, conversations where I was terrified to even send emails. And I was actually like, I would feel good about going in. Cause I was like, 
you know what? Like I I've seen how this person answers questions. I sort of appreciate what they're about. Like I, I can do this. Like I can, I can actually handle this. Mm, yeah. It's just so impressive to me, Jimmy, that the, the thoughtful precision that you took and the care, right. And the diligent way that you went about this, because it's just so rare. I think no matter who you are to, and it's a testament to you, not, you know, I hope you're okay with the flattery here, but it's a testament to you, what you put together. I mean, you didn't just write a book. You, you, you went on a, a major journey, right? The journey in mm. itself is like a book, right? And I think that's a testament oh, that's funny. to, to huh. you, even though you put these leaders, men and women on a pedestal in a way to say, here's the story and things about that they've never, you know, had the ability to share and articulate in the way you did for them. But the journey that you took to, to put it together is what I find fascinating. Don't get me wrong. The book is great, but it's, it's that journey that I'm fascinated by. So uh, just one more question, you know, what you, you, you got access to some of the most profound individuals in the world who happened to build a company out of Silicon Valley. Once you had all your research, right? What, what was your process to, to get in front of them? Was it intros? Was it just, I'm going to go in cold and with some good beta on the line? I mean, <laughs> what, what, what did it take uh, for you to pull this off? Because this is what fascinates me is that you were actually able to do this. Oh yeah. Well, you, you mean like, how do you get in the door? Is yeah, question? Like, what yeah. do you get in the door? Yeah. So, man, this is like PTSD from this. Um, <laughs> so here, 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 I had I had sort of several thought processes and approaches. Right. The first thing was actually. Let me start from the beginning. I came from a slightly advantaged place in the following respect: I had written books before, and so once you've written a couple of books, especially one that was about Claude Shannon you know, you're sort of perceived as like someone who could do this thing, right? Like what I mean by that is like, if you walk into a room and you have a book already, it kind of changes the recipient's mind. I'm like, this person isn't starting out or doing this for the first time, right? Mm -hmm. They've done it a couple of times. They got some experience. So I don't want to make it seem like I was a total neophyte. I have written books. And so that's an advantage, certainly, because you can walk in and say, hey, here's my last book. Here's what motivates this project. Let me describe it to you. Let me explain what I'm doing. So I was like, once that's, you have to have the sort of anti at the table, right? So I had the anti at the table. I was really careful about introductions and about cold, the difference between kind of cold emails, warm introductions, that kind of thing. My perception was that if you're going to email someone like Reid Hoffman, there's a chance he responds to a cold email. There's a better chance if it comes from someone he knows and that it's an intro. There were people like John Malloy, who was a board member early at the company. I just took a guess. I was like, you know, if I email John, I bet he'll respond because he's not a he's not somebody who's like inboxes inundated with like a thousand emails a day, right? And I was like, I bet I could just email him cold and I'll be okay. Tim Hurd, early board member, early investor in the company for Madison Dearborn Partners at the time. Um, same thing. I was like, you know, Tim is an under the radar person. I suspect if I write a really good note and explain what I'm doing, like that will be, be good. Now I also knew in the back of my mind that they would forward that note to someone like Peter Thiel or Elon or whoever. And they would say, Hey, who's this guy? Have you talked to him? So I went in some order, meaning I started with the earliest founders of the company because I knew if I didn't have their buy-in, like there was no point to doing the book, right? Like if you don't actually have those people, they could just, they could sort of like 
you know, they'll just tell everyone else like, wait, I've never heard of this guy before. I'm sure he's just some random person. Right. Um, like we, we all get enough like spam email from, you know, some random person who needs us to transfer a million dollars to their bank account today or else something bad happens. Right. You don't want to be that guy. And so I started with the earliest folks. I kind of got their gauge, their level of interest, sort of saw they might be interested, had conversations with them, but two things respected their inboxes and respected their time. I didn't hit them up for every, like every favor I would, I deliberately actually did not over communicate because they get enough email. They get enough like people bugging them all the time. I kind of knew they knew like, okay, I wanted them to understand I was going to do my homework. If they gave me an hour of their time, I wasn't going to need an hour the next day or the next week or the next month. I, I even told them at one point, I told Peter, I, was, I said to him, we had a conversation. I said, listen, you're probably not going to hear from me for like a year, like a, maybe like longer, like I'm going to go away to my cave and like do my work for a while. And I was very open about that. There mm-hmm. were, there were some people where it just made sense to have intros. You know, Elon's a big enough figure in public life that it made sense to have an introduction. And one of the people I interviewed was kind enough to make an introduction and to talk to him about the project at a dinner that they had before I ever went in. Um, there were people who worked at the same company where sometimes I would chance into one introduction because they happened to work like down the door or down the road from, you know, or down the, the corridor from their friend or from whoever they're working with. And so that worked in my favor. I remember one time, the first interview I did with David Sachs, I did not anticipate that his colleague, Mark Woolway was going to be in the room. They were in Chicago or something or New York or something for a New York for a, uh, a meeting together. And Mark was on my list of people to contact, but he just showed up. And I remember having to like completely change my script. And at one point I just copped to it. I said, listen, Mark, I have to tell you, I have a whole separate series of questions for you, but I didn't know you were going to be here. So if you're cool with it, we can just kind of jam and riff and we'll see where this goes. And maybe I can set up time with you later. And he was very gracious. And he was like, that's totally fine. I get it. I kind of, he's like, I just arrived because you were going to talk about PayPal. And I, you know, I was there. I put a lot of thought into every person I contacted with some people, it took a lot longer to like earn their trust, to like get past certain, you know, to 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 make sure that I was real, that 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 it was okay. But I'll be honest with some people, I was the first person to ever email them and ask them about this experience. I'll give you an example. There was a guy I emailed named Jeremy Royball. Jeremy started out in customer service at PayPal. He eventually became a fraud analyst at PayPal. No one had ever emailed Jeremy to ask him about his PayPal experience. It was one of the professional high points of his life. And he gave me two of the most passionate interviews that anyone, anyone of the hundreds I interviewed gave me. I mean, no joke, incredible, like blew me away. No one had ever asked him about PayPal before. And it was a real shame because his stories are amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they form some of the best moments in the book. Yeah. And so for, for some people, it was just like, I did just cold outreach because why not? What, what's the worst thing they're going to do or say? I also kept a really organized, you asked about process. I kept a really organized document of the number of times I contacted somebody wow. so that I knew if I was, you know, you don't want to be the person who's just like in crowding up what are already crowded inboxes. So I would wait a period before I would recontact somebody. I don't think I did this perfectly. I don't think for a project of this scale, you could ever do it perfectly, but I also benefited from that weekly newsletter document we talked about. I had basically had everyone's birthdays. So I used the birthday list as like my like mission impossible knock list. And I like went in and I was like, okay, like, have I contacted this person? Have I contacted this person? And just went on down the line. Wow. Oh my God, Jimmy. I mean, (laughs) I had respect out loud. It feels crazy, but it works. I mean, it worked anyway. Well, I mean, I had respect for you 
prior to you telling me this. I think I have even more respect <laughs> for you after you telling me this. I mean, but seriously though, right? It, 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 the intentionality, right? The level of intentionality and the proactiveness is, is, is unbelievable to me. Uh, and, and could, I, could I actually add, could I add one thing to yeah, it? Do it. It, it. The one, the one amendment I would make to what I said is some of it can feel like a, like a sort of goofy exercise and just contacting people. A big part of my motivation was the recognition that the best stories within companies often are told by and lived by people who never get to be on the front pages of newspapers. Huh. And so a big part of the reason why I did the book, like it, 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 people, people will look at it and already people are like, oh, it's a story about Elon or it's a story about Peter. And it's not really, that's like, honestly, not what it is. There are so many people in this story who did amazing things who never talk about it in podcasts or at TechCrunch conferences or whatever. And I, I would say the one part of it where I had conviction was I, I did make a really concerted effort to reach out to the earliest people within the company, no matter where they live, no matter what time zone they were in. And I went for broke in trying to talk to people who got written out of past histories. Uh, it was just, that was my kind of thing. I was like, I promise you the best stories are going to come from the Jeremy Royballs of the world. And my hypothesis was right. Mm. But in order to do that, I had to actually be insane about like LinkedIn and like, okay, is this a phone number? Let me call this and leave a voicemail. Like, okay, hmm, maybe the best way to contact him is this. And again, I don't think I got it exactly right, but I collected a lot of people who they would say to me, Hey, it's cool to hear from you, but nobody's ever asked me about PayPal before. That was when I knew I was like, this is great. Mm. So you were you were a philosopher, you were a, a detective, you were a author, you were a pleasant a stalker, <laughs> crazy stalker. I mean, man. you 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 built you built your resume skills on this book alone. Um, Someone said to me there was a there was a person I interviewed at the very end, and she said you've really been trying for like two years to get me on the hook, haven't you? And I, she like we laughed about it because she was like, I get it, I got your notes. Okay, I'll you know. Um, so, so let me ask you this, Jimmy. I mean, again, I want clearly the the the. Let's just take this one away moment around you getting this email trail of years of history as part of this question, right? You go in blind to I'm going to go write a book about the PayPal story, and did you have any idea? what it was going to take to put this together, how you like, what, what was your initial thoughts around information architecture or did the, you just have to roll over a ton of rocks first and then figure out how you were going to like weave it together. I mean, what was the process to, to put this together in a way that was sensible? And do you have any clue to that going in? Yeah, I would say half of it was, I, I did have some experience doing books and I had this amazing editor who passed mid book process. Her name was Alice Mayhew. She was like a Titan in journalism and, and in publishing circles. I mean, just a force of nature edited some of my, the people I admire most in the world. And actually the biggest intervention that she made was she sort of recognized early on. She was like, okay, you're going to have a ton of information and interviews and all these people are going to want to talk to you. What I need from you right now is an outline a historic, a chronological outline of the parts of the book and the chapters. And I want you to break out like, what are the, what is each chapter about and where does it fit chronologically? And why are you telling me the story this way? And I remember like rebelling against this for a little while and like avoiding the project, but actually it was one of the best things because I had to lay out parts one, two, and three. 
I had to go through and outline how many chapters there were going to be. I had to go within and put in bullet points of like what the stories are going to be within each chapter. Like, why does this chapter matter? And that it wasn't a perfect framework, but boy, it came mighty close to like actually being the final book. Uh, wow. The book did end up in three parts. It ended up with, you know, whatever, 20 odd chapters. And it was because of that outlining process. So, and I have found other writers are better outliners than I am. They like, and probably frankly, like save themselves a lot of heartache. Like I got to the outline and the outline provided a rough framework for what I was going to do. And then I would say there were like two or three other things that really helped. One is, um, Scrivener is a is a piece of software that's that I think most often is used by like fiction writers. I mean, maybe nonfiction, I don't know, but they seem to advertise as more of a fiction novel writing piece of software. It's amazing. And it was the best place to warehouse like a ton of information and nuggets and little things I'd written, scraps, and just the way the UX on that software is, it like helped me keep my own thoughts square. And then I would say I used uh, Google Docs and Google Sheets the most because they live update, you know, you can go back to old versions if you need. And it just helped me keep everything organized. So every chapter went through multiple iterations and I have the V1, V2, all the way through to like the V8s of each chapter on a Google sheet. And it has links to separate Google docs. So that, that helped me keep everything uh, organized. The interviews themselves were their own infrastructure, right? So you can imagine I have like 15, 16 days worth of audio, like end to end. If you were to listen to it end to end, it would take you like 15 days or whatever total to listen to it. And so that was its own sort of like epic spreadsheet. I used otter.ai as like my transcription service and software. And I would just like, you know, I mean, and for lack of, a, I would just hustled through it. Like I would like listen and take notes, listen, take notes. And you know, look, I had done a book before, so I knew what monstrous enterprises books were. These are not like easy things to do, but I also didn't walk in completely blind. Like I kind of knew I was like, okay, this is how this is going to go. Um, I, I, you know, tested the patience of every person at Simon and Schuster with the number of revisions I did at the end. And, and that was just a function of getting better stories and more interviews and finding people who, who finally responded to an email after two years of trying. Right. But that's a little bit of the process. I would say like, there's there's no there's no wisdom that comes from it. everyone every author kind of has their own approach for me that the big thing was writing rough material every day for a very long period until i had a big chunk of material was actually like what helps you get the thing going right so i had to hit a word count every day put it in scrivener and just do that every day. And then you can start to see, you're like, oh, I'm really, really good at the beginning of the book and Elon's early life, but I have nothing on X, Y, or Z. And that's kind of how I approached it. Wow. 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 <laughs> you're like, you need to get some therapy now, Jimmy. So like, we're going to leave you be this episode. Uh, Jimmy, so Jimmy, you can go Jimmy, get some help. <laughs> Jimmy, this, this is your therapy session. Okay. Hey, hey, eat, eat. Revisions on each right. chapter. Oh, that's like I mean, eight's undercounting it actually. To be oh. honest, eight's eight's before we moved to PDFs, and then I did another five after that. Great. So when Elon listens to this, and Peter and Deb Blue and all your people, you know, uh, they're gonna know that uh, you you put about twenty revisions into each chapter. I mean, that's that's a that's a work of art right there. You're like a sculptor. You're a sculptor. Yeah. Well, I you know the other part of it actually, Brian. The thing the thing about it, it makes it sound like it was all about the research and the drudgery. Right. Here's the second half of it. Tell me. You can have a really interesting fact and make it super boring to read that fact. Mm. And I had to balance making sure the book was 100% accurate or as close to accurate as I could get it, 
but also not making it homework. Like you can't make these things, you can't make reading these things like watching paint dry. You know, you have to bring it to life, especially when you're talking about what is fundamentally like payment processing on the internet in the late 1990s. Like we're not talking about, you know, Formula One racing or like an epic drive for a world championship in football or something. Like this is not, this is payment processing on the internet. Let's like remember what the context is. Big personalities to be sure, but it's not like the subject matter needs to come to life. And so part of a big part of the revision process was finding ways to just make the reader move through things. Like, how do you make a scene come to life? What stories are you choosing and not choosing? What words are you choosing? So a lot of the revision was, like, the beginning is just gathering string. You like pull all this material Perfect. together. But a lot of the revision is, I had friends who like would witness over text a paragraph go from one to two to revision three to revision four. And it was only on the fourth where I'm like, I got it. I nailed it. I figured it out. And so that was a big part of it was getting it right is one thing, making it readable is another. Mm. And like readability is a big problem with history books. People don't, you know, they don't always enjoy what they read. So it was for me, it was like, I want the reader to like smile and laugh and, you know, maybe cry. Um, And it's hard to do with late 1990s payment processing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I mean, it's just so cool to me because you dress, it sounds like you've really put a lot of thought into how you're dressing it up. Again, from history to giving it some style, to, to making it yeah. an engaging read and being thoughtful and what the reader was going to experience in the process of reading it, uh, which just, again, your, your thought and the research and the beating down the doors to the writing of the product. I mean, uh, you, everything was so deliberately thought through uh, and how you orchestrated it, which is, I just, it's incredible. I mean, most authors, I I would say, don't give this level of detail to their work. Oh, I wouldn't. I I don't know if I agree with the last point. And and the only reason is because I always feel like I'm at a kid's table and the people who are at the adult's table are Robert Caro and Stacey Schiff and Candace Millard and Doris Kearns Goodwin and Walter Isaacson, like all of the folks, you know, like all of these, like, like these, these towering history figures that I read, right. Um, Laura Hillenbrand, by the way, is like the big, the author of Seabiscuit. I mean, I am in awe of her work. So I'll give you, I'll give you the story that is actually relevant and inspired me. You know, Laura, the, the author who did Seabiscuit is also the author who did Unbroken. And she has, what's been called, and I think miss, miss, she sort of criticized even the phrasing of it, but it's called chronic fatigue syndrome, mm-hmm. right? CFS. And she basically is like bedridden for years and years and years dealing with this affliction. She wrote a beautiful article in the New Yorker about it, but she's also like one of the best pound for pound researchers in narrative history and like really goes for broke. And like she mm-hmm. reads for the, for the sea biscuit and for unbroken, she would read like world war two newspapers, like day after day after day of world war two newspapers, just to understand that period. And so in a way, like, yes, I did all the work. What I was really trying to do was just imitate the writers I admire. And the writers I admire are insane. <laughs> I mean, like, they're nuts. Robert Caro and Laura Hillenbrand, they're like the biggest names in this space. And I just always thought to myself, like, if they were attacking the story, what would they do? Well, what they would do is they would try to call or contact everybody. What they would do is they would try to print out old blogs from the year 2000 to understand what the internet was like. What they would do is I, I actually... Oh man, I stood on University Avenue where these companies were and I walked between the two addresses of the companies just to see what the walk would have been like, right? So I could like understand it. 
I, I like did all kinds of crazy. I looked at Peter Thiel's old chess games to see if there was like any evidence that he like favored a certain style of play. Right. I did that because I thought it's what Laura would do, or I thought it's what Robert Caro would do, or I thought it was sort of like Barbara Tuckman, you know, who's an old, uh, she has, she's the, she's not alive, but she was a historian who did this remarkable book called the guns of August. Like I always ask myself, like, what would they do? And that's, so I would say that's like the one disclaimer is there are other people who do this. Plenty of them, I think. Wow. No, well, I, I love that you gave credit, right, to where credit's due. Uh, and you, you were able to build off of, you know, some of those experiences to, you know, bring into your own. And and I think that's so important, right, where you, you're like, this isn't just how I did it, but I, I was able to witness or learn from others who learn from or by osmosis or yeah, that sort of thing. So, Jimmy, you know, what I'm also curious about is, you know, for you, you're, you know, a couple of months removed from I think really being the manuscript set in stone before the book hits market. I mean, I know you're marketing right now, but what, what would you say is you kind of look at, hold a candle up to yourself and look in the mirror. What would you say you learned the most about yourself through this process as a professional, as a human, as a person, as a father? That is a great question. Okay, this is get this is one of those answers that um it's not like a fully formed thought, but it it's fully formed sort of in my my gut. Basically every day for several years, I have worked on this project, meaning 7 days a week. So during the week it was like 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. weekends it was like 4 a.m. to about 4 or 5 p.m. Every every day, essentially, with very few breaks, and like I worked on all the holidays, everything else. And to some people, I think that can sound like, wow, like that's like a, <laughs> a sad life. Uh, and what I would say is, in a funny way, I actually, I like miss it. Like I miss, now that I'm out of the manuscript stage and the book's about to come out, I miss the homework. I miss the the challenge of contacting people. I miss the interviews so much. Like I enjoyed these interviews so much. I miss the chase. I miss the finding the fact that's buried in those newsletters. I think the thing that I learned about myself was just how much this work fits with the kind of person I am. Like I, I actually really enjoyed being alone at 4 a.m., like listening to old YouTube videos, trying to find a nugget about a company so that I could bring it to life for readers. Um, I don't think, you know, pro- your, your, your question's a very perceptive one because it's not just that like creators shape projects, projects shape creators, right? right? So it's, it's like the things we build actually do build us in some meaningful way. And the thing that this gave me especially at the end of it and seeing how like people are excited about it. And there's some stories in here that have never been told before. Like it gave me a kind of reassurance about what can seem from the outside, like a series of really bad life choices. <laughs> right? Like you can look back at this and be like, what fool would get up to do this every day for this long about a company it's already existing. Like, why don't you go out and build something but I actually like loved it. Like I like loved, I learned to love it. And that's something different. There's this great, Mm. what I think about a lot is there's this great Jerry Seinfeld interview with Howard Stern, Mm. where Howard Stern is talking about how he improved as a, as a disc jockey on, on the radio. And he says something about how it's like dedication or discipline or something. 
And Jerry Seinfeld cuts him off and says, no, 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 you have that wrong. I'll tell you what that is. And he says, that's love. He says, you have love for your craft. And it's this whole long meditation that's worth Googling. But that's what I found was, was uh, not to get too ethereal about it, but it really is. I found like a love for that process, for the daily waking up and doing this thing. And it's, it's the best high there is. Yeah. Just want to pause and take that in. I really appreciate the answer because it seems like you didn't, you're bringing this baby into the world. You didn't know though, how much you were going to love the baby. And by the end of the baby, you know, by the end of the process of, of shaping the baby, right. You, you like are that much more in love with it. And now it's like time to give it wings and like, really like right. let that love flow into the world because of what you put into it. I mean, you almost got a little emotional. I mean, I was just watching your eyes mm-hmm. that because it was it, this incredible process for you. You said, you know, the, the work of art shaped you as a person is what you said, which really stuck and you grew through it. Uh, and also maybe found your, a bit of your identity and saying, I, I, this is the kind of work I really like. I don't need to go build a massive company, but th- this is the work that I can bring my full self to. And w- what an yeah. incredible thing to experience. I mean, most people never wake up and realize what they love in their work. And you, you maybe saw that firsthand in, the, in an even more forceful way than Claude Shannon. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, that that's that is true of this project for me in a way that I don't think it was true about Shannon. Like I, I valued the chance to do Shannon, and it was a big challenge, and I was unfamiliar and with the subject matter. This was different. This was a like this was climbing Everest. It was the Everest of technology histories, right? Um, and there's a satisfaction that comes with that, and I miss it. Like the, the honest, my honest, the truth of it is, as hard as it was, and it was really really hard, I miss those mornings now. And I don't think I could have said that. Like I think you and I were talking a year ago and I was like, I can't wait until this thing is done. This thing's awful. It's the worst thing in my life. And now I, I miss it. I miss the research phase of it. I miss the part of it where I was learning new things, but I'll, you know, that's actually the virtue of doing this kind of work is I'm, I'm sure something else will, I'll fall in love with something else in the same way and have to approach it in the same way. Yeah, no, that's uh special. And you can, yeah, like you said, you can give that love to other other things but you, yeah. you, know, you know what feels right in your heart yeah. uh, when you're on the right path with your work and right. being able to share and celebrate that with other people and what i also took away was you know you're, you're talking it wasn't just about elon and peter Thiel and um you know reed hoffman and you know some of the other women and i apologize i don't know those names as much but to you what i'm taking away is you found so much joy in the process of talking to the people who are the unheard voices, the mm-hmm. people who weren't out there as much, which I also think is, is so compelling because like you said, they had those, those nuggets that you'd never be able to hear. Cause you only hear people in the mainstream. So um, yeah, I just, I just kind of wanted to add that as you're talking about things. Yeah, it was, it was the best part of the whole thing. Honestly, it was um, I have this uh, at the tail end of my process, I had a, a meeting with Sky Lee and Amy Rowe Clement, who are two very big figures in this story. Um, Amy's one of the leaders of the product team, 
and goes on to a really distinguished career as an executive uh, and today as an, as an investor. And Sky Lee runs UX and design for the whole company. And they were like these twin pillars of just incredible right. like talent and bravado and insight. And no one had ever written up their contributions to the company. And I thought this was just like a crying shame, right? Like I remember actually looking on listen notes for podcasts of Amy before I interview her, same process, look at what they've said before and then see what, and there were like two or three podcasts she had done. And she was, you know, she was a big wig at, at the Omidyar network. So obviously the focus of these podcasts was on that work, but PayPal was, was a limited piece of it. And I just remember thinking like you, her colleagues that I had interviewed had said incredible things about her. And I just remember thinking like, I'm sure we're going to like, we'll have the best conversation if I can just get my foot in the door. And I, that part of this process is the best. I think mm -hmm. the best thing in the book is not stuff related to the people, you know, it is entirely connected to the experience that PayPal was for all these other people. And it was for me, the best part of the research was when some, somebody who others would regard as like a name that time forgot would respond to me and say, yeah, okay, cool. How's Tuesday at three. And I would, we'd talk and they would just light up every conversation I had with people who are part of this story, who are part of the story went way over time. Uh, and so that was also a really cool thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the historical tales you're sharing and, and kind of how you brought those people to life and gave those perspectives, right? It gives the book a whole richer meaning. So I want, I want to shift the conversation a little outward now, right? We talked about you, we talked about the book, some of the people in the book. Let's talk about the audience, right? The, 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 the hmm. future founders out there, the current founders out there, the executives at businesses like PayPal that want to go off and do their own thing. When they pick this book up, you know, what do you want them to feel? What do you want them to take away, right, from this work? And how do you see it impacting them? I'll give a, I'll give a little bit of a counterintuitive answer. I would say that they're going to, every founder who reads the book or somebody in that sort of role is probably going to take something different from it. And as an author, one of the things I think, at least for in the line of work I'm in, you have to be careful not to put your thumb too heavy on the scale of like, here's what I want you to take. <laughs> like, here's the lesson, right? right? Yeah. I actually have a really light touch with that kind of like, okay, no, no, no. I'm going to tell the story. And then you take away whatever you have to, like one author I've, I've listened to describe is like, you have to leave a reader sized hole in the book because they're all going to make of it what they need to make of it. <laughs> and so for some people, I imagine what they're going to say or take away from it is, wow, it takes a lot of like Elon level determination to make a company successful. I'm like, yeah, there's some evidence for that in the book, I'm sure. Um, other people are going to say, whoa, it takes us a crazy cast of personalities and everybody's a little bit different. I think that's probably one of the takeaways from the book. Um, another would, another person might say, man, they just got really, really lucky. Like, oh boy, they just got super lucky. And like that, so yeah, luck is a big part of the story. I never try to be too presumptuous with like, here's the lesson. What I'm trying to do is tell as accurately as I can a story about how the company came to be from 1998 to 2002. Mm. So the one exception I would say is that at the very end of the book, I buried this little like, like lesson for my daughter, like at the very, 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 very end. If you've suffered through the whole book, it's like literally like a message. I describe it as like a message in a bottle for her. Like, And the message in a bottle is look for people who challenge you look for friendships that will provoke you and like make you better. Right. So don't, don't just look for friendships of comfort. What I described as like, look for friendships of productive discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, meaning 
do are there people in your life who love you enough to be totally honest with you? Because the thing that I did see in this company and even in the after like life of this company and in the people I interacted with was a real focus on like respecting one another enough to be completely honest with each other and saying, no, you're wrong. And here's why you're wrong. And I'm going to show you all the 25 ways you're wrong, but it's in service of making you better. It's not personal. It's, I want to help you or this company or this product or whatever get better. And I would say that like, I don't, I, until I did this book, I don't think I did a good enough job of having those kinds of people in my life. And in the course of doing this book, I was very quickly able to identify who those people were because I saw it play out like on the page and in between, you know, Peter and Max and whatever. And I don't want to make too much of this because this is not a book about lessons. It's a book about history and what the company was. But for me, the lesson I gave that I wrote into the book for my daughter is a lesson about productively uncomfortable friendships. Hmm. I, I, I absolutely think that's phenomenal and something your daughter, as she gets older and will grow to appreciate. And I think any human with an open mind and a growth mindset appreciates those relationships of discomfort, productive discomfort in their life, because those are what shape our thinking, open us up, evolve us, uh, and make us better. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you, you entered into a significant period where I'm sure there was a lot of productive discomfort, you know, to, to drive a being of a company that, that is shaping and changed lives for the last 20 plus years. Well, another question I want to ask you, and, and this is answer this anyway, someone once asked me this, and I thought it's a really interesting question. This book was a really meaningful experience. If you could maybe pay, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell Chris Schembra, he runs a gratitude podcast. He's a friend, client, mentor uh, type. Um, he asked a question on his show and I kind of want to give it to you. If you could pay uh, your respects or gratitude to someone throughout who is significant in this process, who you don't maybe think of or, or pay enough respect to, who would it be and why? It's a great question. I think it would be my editor. So my editor, my my the first editor for this project was Alice Mayhew, and she passed away a couple of years ago. The then a call came from, I assume, like Simon and Schuster High Command to an editor named Stephanie Freerich. And Stephanie was basically like, as best as I can tell, like got a call and is like, hey, we have this, we have this book project. It's this thing about PayPal. It was an Alice project. We got to hand it to somebody. And she took it on. Hmm. And has gone through hell and back for this book. I mean, legitimately, like I, I was told that I set the Simon and Schuster record for revisions between the first pass and the second pass, and then revisions between the second pass and the third pass. I annoyed the the crap out of everybody there with endless requests for little things on here and the cover and this and that. This pot, this book was not easy to bring to fruition, hmm. and Stephanie willing like willingly did this despite not having signed the book on from the beginning so it wasn't her project it was alice's project it was handed to stephanie and so it means all the more that she like did everything she did Mm -hmm. to bring it to life and like i am endlessly grateful to her because not only did she do all of the things i just described she also just made the book better like she would go in and say like you didn't explain this to me I need more context here. You can't assume your reader knows this. You're writing about the late 1990s internet. Don't forget, like, we don't know anything. Mm -hmm. What's the point of this passage? Do you really need this? I mean, 
at a level of granularity that is honestly like what editors did years and years and years ago. And sometimes the, the difficulties of the publishing business don't allow them to do now. Stephanie did all that and more. And so she's the person actually that I'm probably most grateful to in the, in the grand scheme of things. Well, sounds like she created and induced some productive discomfort for you in the, uh, that's a hundred percent. Right. So Jimmy, this was a blast and I I'm excited to, to do a, a live with you uh, to dive into the details of the book. But I think this was a great place that you were able to attribute your learned experiences from writing it and the value that you brought to this, um, which I I'm just in admiration of and our friendship as well. So thanks for being such a friend, an incredible figure. Where can people go buy this book, find you, reach out to you? What, what's best? Yeah, no. And, and look, the road cuts both ways. Like one of the people who gives me a lot of productive discomfort is you, Brian. So I'm, I'm grateful for that because you push my thinking in, in ways that are really, really important. And you sort of like always force me out from underneath my rock to like go and do the things I need to do to make sure people actually hear about the book, which is also powerful. The book is available everywhere books are sold. You know, it's on, on Amazon and, and every place else. It's called The Founders. I'm on Twitter infrequently at best. Uh, I'm Jimmy A. Sony on Twitter. I'm not great about tweeting or, or being much of a presence there. But hey, it's a great place where let's like, I see it as a P.O. box. Like if you reach me there, like, cool. Like I'm, you know, I'll get back to you in a couple months. <laughs> um, <laughs> Brian, Brian is cringing right now because he knows that's not the way it should be. But so it is. Uh, and then I have a website, jimmysony.com. Also not the most, it's, I'll update it more this year, I think, cause I'm now I'm out of the craziness of the book process, but it's, it's my format is, you know, I go under a rock for three or four years and then emerge with something and hopefully the thing is good. And then I go back under the rock for a little while. Um, but I, I love engaging with readers. I, the truth is I actually really enjoy it because it's the reason you do this kind of work. And so I'm happy to hear from anybody, um, and on any of those formats or, or mediums. Well, thank you, Jimmy. And yes, I am cringing because you sent me <laughs> for for to end. Jimmy sends me tweets that I engage in and retweet, and get and Jimmy doesn't even engage or retweet enough. I mean, that's that's how uh, social media avoidant hate. Right, exactly. Uh, Jimmy, I think you've dug yourself a, a nice hole with this book. I was going to say, I really have. I can't hide at the moment, which I sort of want to do, but it's okay. Great. And on the last note, you and Ryan Holiday should hang out because I'm sure he'd tell you not to, you know, live in a cave. So uh, I know. Well, Ryan's great. Ryan's a, Ryan's actually he's he's a friend and he's the reason this book got started because he made the first introduction to Peter Thiel so that I could actually get my first foot in the door. So we were talking about, you know, really amazing people who kind of can help and nudge and push. And he's he's definitely one of them. Great. Well, sounds like a nice holiday, holiday present for you. So Jimmy, uh, this is a pleasure. Thanks, Brian. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.